because money's become the organizing, the central organizing force in the world, and we all know love should be, right? But it, it's money, and that's a bummer. Because of that, I think one of the central tests that we face is how we would answer the question, have you any money? I think the right way to answer that is I have sufficient for my needs. Just meditate and ponder and work on what it means to have sufficient for your needs, and there will be enough. Enough already exists. You can't get there. You can just be there. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Welcome to the most hated F words 100th episode. And what a journey it has been. Thank you for those who have listened to an episode or two. And thank you to those who just joined the podcast for the first time today. Today's a bit of a milestone. It's the 100th released episode, and I could not be happier to have Carl Richards on today's show. Before we get into the 100th episode with Carl Richards, I have a favor. If you've listened to this podcast before, one, two, or many of the last 100 episodes, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. These reviews really help bring great guests on the show And I'm looking forward to have many, many more shows in the future. All right, so who is Carl Richards? Well, Carl has been someone who I've looked up to for many, many years. He's a creator, thought leader, author, someone who first introduced me to this gap, or as he calls it, the behavior gap, which is the difference between, say, an investment return and the actual investor's return because our behaviors create this gap. I feel like Carl has always been looking forward or looking at the problem, so to speak, at from a different angle. And I've always appreciated that as he always had curiosity to why aren't humans, us people, behaving the way we want to with our money? And his book, The Behavior Gap, played such an instrumental role in my way of being in both my relationship with money and how I communicated as a financial planner. So Carl is a certified financial planner himself, and he's also a creator. He's an artist and an author. He started this sketch guy column where he brought these beautiful pictures. His drawings would perfectly explain these financial concepts in a simple understandable way. I love looking at all his art and I highly recommend you check out his website and his work. Carl has been featured on so many different news articles such as Marketplace, Oprah.com, Forbes, 
etc. And the list literally goes on and on. Carl is an engaging keynote speaker where he does presentations all over the world. As I mentioned, he's the author of The Behavior Gap and The One-Page Financial Plan, both of which I really, really enjoy reading and find tons of value in it. As I mentioned earlier, he has these financial sketches, and they've appeared in solo shows at the Kimball Art Center in Park City, Utah, as well as other showings at Parsons School of Design in New York City, the Schultz Museum in Santa Rosa, California, and the exhibit at the Mansion House in London. And on episode number 63 of the Most Hated Effort podcast, I had Greg Davis on the podcast. And Greg and Carl actually collaborated on an open cry opera on a trading floor where Carl's art was displayed. Super interesting. As I reflect back on the last 100 episodes, every single conversation spoke to me. Every single conversation, I learned something new. This, the 100th episode, was a meaningful conversation once again. It was a deep conversation. A rich conversation, rich beyond dollars and cents. I felt like this conversation transcended money and touched on areas in our lives that really matter. Like, what is enoughness? How can we become more congruent with our values and actions? How can we find peace with letting go of our tight-fisted financial plans and accept that these plans will and do change? Carl has always been a thought leader, a creator, and an inspiration for me. It was an absolute pleasure to have him on the 100th episode of the Most Hated Effort podcast. And maybe after you listen to this, we will all coach a little bit more soccer and put the real important things on our balance sheets. You have to listen to the episode to get what that means. Enjoy this fascinating conversation with Carl Richards. somebody who I've been reading and following along for a number of years. Carl, I'm sure we'll get into your books, but your book, The Behavior Gap, found me at a time when I didn't necessarily know I was looking for that book. But when I picked it up, I was like, ah, this is what's wrong. Or this is what is kind of the issue with my perspective on financial planning is that I feel like I have to focus on the numbers, maximizing portfolios, but your simple drawing of the behavior gap opened up a whole new world. So Carl, I'm excited to have you on the podcast today. Uh, super good to be here. Thanks, Sean, for that. I, we're celebrating the 10-year anniversary this year. So it's, it's kind of had a little resurgence lately, which has been fun to talk about. I think that both having your, your simple, and I don't say this, that they're simple drawings, simple to view your drawings. And if anyone doesn't know, Carl is... I would call him an artist. I don't know what you self-identify in that yeah, realm. Yeah. An artist that can depict these complex concepts beautifully in a simple manner for people to understand when we're talking about your money. So Carl, I want to just first start because that book really did kind of, to use a word you say, give me a course correction on my whole way of being as a planner, my way of being as what should I focus on? I want to go back in history for a bit and 
go to the Carl who just started doing that on the column that you started just bringing these drawings. I think there's a couple of client examples, but then 10 years out now, looking back on that Carl, what would you tell that Carl 10 years ago from the course corrections you've done along the way in terms of giving him advice? Because I would assume that Carl at that time was taking a chance, stepping out, going against the grain. So what would you say to that Carl, the 10 year older Carl with a bigger beard, as I can see now? Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting. The first word that comes to mind is relax, right? Taking risk. I mean, I never thought about it really as taking risk, but it's funny, like it's so easy and so tempting to look backwards and make up cute little stories about how things happened. But the reality is all we really have when we look backwards is myth and story, right? Like it, it, we, we don't really know. So when I look back, I use words like, oh, take risk. And I like to do new and novel things. and I love to be creative. But I didn't know that then. All I knew then was there was a thing that I really wanted to do. And I just knew I wanted to do it right now. I didn't know I was going to do it next week or next month or next year. I, I just knew that, man, I got to take this complex thing, this question that somebody just asked me about some financial topic, and I got to reduce it to something. I got to figure out what matters in it. I got to consider the edge cases and the nuance and dive into it and get all, all the complexity. And then at the end of that complexity, my brain, I just had to, to make sense of the world, I had to say, no, this is what matters. And the this part was actually the sketch. So looking back now, two things come to mind. And then one's related to the work and one's related to money is like, first of all, just relax. Like, I wish I could tell myself 10 years ago, 20 years ago, like, relax. Like, it's, it's all going to be fine. And I don't mean that it's all going to work. I just mean it's going to be fine. And the second thing I really, and I've, just recently been totally focused on this is like, I wish I could communicate 10 years ago, like I'm safe, right? Like there's enough. Mm -hmm. And, and I wish I realized that enough is independent of my external circumstances. Enough is a way of being not a way of having. I'm only recently sort of coming out of that personal journey around like, look, it, it, you're safe. There's enough, like everything's going to be fine. So that's what I wish I could communicate. I appreciate that, that relax and you're safe. I think speak to me when I look back at myself, at least from why I became a financial planner. And I don't think it's unique to me, but when I relax and take down my defensiveness and started diving into why I became a financial planner, I realized that it was to make me feel good. It was to make me feel like I had power influence that this, as a shy kid growing up, I was now being seen and heard. And it came out of this way of not feeling safe. And I kind of had to prove myself. And, you know, unfortunately at the time, it was at the detriment of the advice I gave or the lack of understanding that a plan doesn't always work. So this idea of relaxing and staying safe, how can that help us as we financial planners or consumers move forwards to take risks. Because sometimes we take risk from a, a, a scarcity mindset, like I got to just do this, I got to prove myself. But I'm hearing you say, relax, it's going to be okay. How can that, if anything at all, actually help us take risks? I don't know very many people that walk around saying, I feel unsafe with money. But we, a lot of people say, I feel insecure, right? I don't, I don't feel secure. If this happens, I'll be secure. If you're insecure with money, 
no amount of money will solve that problem. And that just seems so impossible to believe, but it's not a job that money can do. Providing security beyond a certain base level, which anybody listening to this is beyond. And the reason we know this to be, and certainty is very close to it. I think a lot of like what I hear when I listen to what you said about your journey, what it prompted, I'm not suggesting this is true for you, but what it prompted is how often we want to provide for ourselves as financial planners and then as humans, how often we want to provide security and certainty. Like we, as an industry, we've become really at risk at being sellers of certainty. And the problem with that is it's easy to sell. Certainty is super easy to sell because everyone wants to buy it. But it's impossible to deliver. So certainty, security, and enough are these three words that we think money can do that job. And it turns out it's totally ill-equipped to do that job. It can't do that job. Enough is always there. Security is always there. And certainty is always there in the form of just like allowing yourself to realize there is no such thing as certainty. And I think this last couple of years have really proven that point. Like I, all you have to do if you think planning really detailed, like if you just work hard enough, if you just get the right forecast, if you just built the biggest spreadsheet, if you just get more designations behind your name, that if you just do it right, you'll be able to plan into the future with certainty. All you have to do is go back to January of 2020. Like just simply look at your calendar in January. Like what did, what were you planning on doing in April? Like all we have to do is four months, let alone four years or 40 years, four months, nothing looked the way you thought it was going to look four months before. Not, not, not anything. And so the whole world, we've been given permission really to open up this discussion where we say, maybe it's not money's job to provide certainty, security, or enough. And the more we try to get it to do it, the worse it becomes enough. Particularly, you just think like, if I just get there, I'll have enough. And we don't, as adults, we largely know not to do that because we've heard so many times, like, don't do that. You'll never, it's, but we do it anyway, right? I, I found myself the other day, even after a really profound experience around this, where I was just really clearly felt like, I don't need to worry about this anymore. Like I don't need to worry about enough uncertainty and security for myself. Like I don't need to. And that's not because I have crazy money in the bank. Not at all. Like I have very little visibility to be honest. I just had this really profound experience around it. And then the next day I was like, oh man, oh, when we just do this. And I, I was telling my wife, I was like, when we do, do, do just do this. And then I audibly, I was like, oh, it'll be like that. And she was like, no, it won't. It won't. Like, it could be like that now. You can never get there. You can only be there. And so that to me is like, I think it's from that place, independent of our external circumstances, that we can say, hey, I'm safe to take risk. And by risk, I just mean like doing things that may not work. You know, like, uh, maybe I'll try this side job. Maybe I'll quit my job. Maybe I'll raise my hand in the next 
parent meeting of the soccer club. Maybe I'll give myself permission to leave on Fridays at 2.30 and pick my daughter up from school. Like, I'll just do some things that may not work, right? I'll write a book. I'll share something on, start a podcast, whatever it is, that thing. And that's all I really know how to do now is like, notice there's a thing I want to do and do it. And I have no idea what's going to happen next week. I, I don't know where we're going to live. Like people are always asking me because we just moved back from New Zealand. We spent four years in New Zealand and a year in London. We just moved back. We're like, are you here for good? And I'm like, I have no clue. Like I would never say all of that to say to me is like, be here now. Understand that it's in your, you are currently enough that the security you're seeking is independent of your external circumstances. It's inner work, not outer work. And that the only certainty can be found in embracing uncertainty. Yeah, I really hear you talking about this permission of when you go inward and kind of detach those desired outcomes that we feel like money can give, we get permission to be ourselves and to enjoy the process. And I think there's something extremely valuable about that idea of permission to be ourselves so that we don't attach these desired outcomes that out here are the social contract says that we should feel around money. And this reminds me of from the behavior gap. And I think we'll go into your idea about planning and the process of a plan. But when you say certainty, security, and enough, I feel like stories have always been a means to give humans that idea to have certainty, have security. And we can see that in like, I don't know, I'm talking about the Plato imagining the Republic of like, oh, this imaginary place, here's hope. It's going to give you security. And it makes me think of what you're saying, a line from Behavior Gap, when you said, I, I, I don't have the quote here, but <laughs> sorry if I get it wrong, but a, a financial plan is a fictional narrative of the future. I believe that was you, right? Yep. Yeah. What is it about this idea of a financial plan that can just be a fictional narrative of the future that really might not even be worthwhile. Yeah, so I think we have to separate out a couple of things. Like, let's first let's separate the financial plan from the never-ending ongoing process of planning. So, it is the experience of mapping out a plan for the future valuable. So, I went through a long period where I was like, I don't even I don't even know that's like I the the one-page financial plan in my second book was a negotiation it was originally the zero page, like, like the no plan plan. But then I realized like the easiest analogy is I wouldn't want to get on a plane with a pilot that didn't have a detailed flight plan. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and so I started asking pilots. There's a lot of pilots live in Park City and I, I, you know, whenever I flew, if I had a chance, like whatever, I, do you generate a, do you produce a detailed flight plan for every flight? And every pilot I talked to said yes. And then I would ask, how often does the flight go exactly according to plan? And they would say, never. And so there's something really beautiful about this competing fact, and this is what adults have to do sometimes, is hold two competing truths at the same time. That the plan really matters, and we should take the time, and we should be really good at it. We should draw the best map, the best plan that we can. And... We know it's wrong. Those two things can be true at the same time. So there's something valuable about saying, it's just we don't want to live 
And in fact, I, I'd sometimes joke that you should have financial planning hats and they should be really ugly so that you don't want to wear them very often. Right. So maybe once a month, maybe once a quarter, maybe once a year, you put on your financial planning hat, you really dig in like, okay, here's where we think we're going. This is the intended route, right? Like this is kind of, this is our intention. And I love, I love the idea of goals done correctly, which is a whole nother discussion, but goals done correctly. I love the idea of goals, even though I know that that's not going to end up being my goal. And I'm not going to, I would have never set a goal to write a column for the New York times. I wouldn't have even thought of it. I would have never set a goal to write a book for Penguin. I would have never set like none of these things I would have even thought of, but I still like the idea of a goal because it gives me a sense of direction. Like I just think of a goal, we should hold it a little lighter. Like I'm going to head that way. Then the most important work comes is we take the ugly planning hats off and we live our lives. And when we wake up and go, huh, I thought I wanted to take a trip to the beach every year. We've done that two years in a row. And you know, I'm not so sure it's what we thought it was going to be. What if we stayed home or went to the mountains instead? Oh, you're allowed to do that, right? I thought I wanted to retire someday. Turns out I don't really want to retire someday. I just want to change the way I'm working. I'd rather teach at the high school. You know, whatever. So strong opinions loosely held. That's where I think financial planning becomes valuable. So it's almost like the financial plan is worthless without the ongoing process of planning. I really, really agree and appreciate your or focus on this idea of now of the process. And it's interesting as earlier, as I heard you say, relaxed and making feel safe. All of these things, to me at least, embody the ability to then say like, oh, I'm going to change my plan just because, you know, you're more content with yourself, I feel like. And that comes with understanding the underbelly of those goals. And I like how you view goals as not this thing of being so rigid and distracting where I got to focus everything to get my goal. I hear you talking like you have loosely held on to these goals, which is detaching from the outcome, which I think allows us to then play, so to speak. I'm just thinking here. So like the financial plan, if I'm going to the airport, yes, this, I love your course corrections, but my ticket says like I'm going to say Utah. I hear you really talking now, but you, you have that ticket, it's important, but you really need to know where you are so you can get to the departure terminal. Terminal, Because if you don't get to that departure terminal, this ticket is pointless. Yeah. So how have you seen advisors or whether it's through yourself, the work you do for people to understand a bit more of where they're at so that they can really embody the planning process versus just getting this 50-page financial plan and thinking they've got everything figured out and life is going to be fruitful. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, like where you're at, I always thought like that must be the easy part. You know, it's just, it's quantifiable. It's just a set of numbers. I mean, we would, we would call that a balance sheet and maybe even an income statement, but so we've got this list of things that we own and things that we owe. And it seems like it should be a factual record. And that's just the money side. Like, but if even that piece has a real, there's a real dilemma. The dilemma is a balance sheet is more than just numbers. It's a set of stories. And those stories are like every item on the balance sheet, you know, there could be mistakes. I bought this thing and it went to zero. You're talking with a couple, you're a financial planner talking with a couple and 
you got to remember that every item on that balance sheet, someone thought it was a good idea at some time to put it there. And even the things that have gone well. So I guess what I'm saying is a bunch of shame and blame often shows up around your current reality. Because even the things that go well, one, one spouse may say, I told you we should have bought more of that. The debt, like how did we get the debt there? Oh, that was your school loan. I knew I should have talked to you about that before we got married. You know, like there's all these, there's all these things. And then you add on top of it, like I remember one time, this was years ago, somebody, I believe it was on Twitter, said something like some personal finance expert said something like, being a stay-at-home mom is always a bad financial decision. And my wife's got a degree in finance and was the CFO of a, a real estate company, but made a decision to stay at home, our four kids. And if you asked my wife if it was a bad financial decision, she would tell you, no way. It was the best financial decision I ever made. Because on our balance sheet, there's a line item that says staying home with the kids. And my wife, not me, I'm glad she did. I'm totally supportive, but it was her decision. My wife put a number there, right? And that number can't actually even be measured with a number, but, but it's on the balance sheet. You know, moving to New Zealand, terrible financial decision, right? But an investment that we, would ne- we will never regret. And then that's before we even start with the idea of like, you know, are there grudges on your balance sheet that you're holding on to? Have you invested a whole bunch in some relationships that are now sunk costs that you should let go of? Have you invested a ton and you're expecting a return on this idea of security again? Is that on your balance sheet? So it's much more than just, just money, but even just the money, we've got to remember, like there's stories embedded in every single one of those. Why do you own that old car? Oh, my dad was always telling me never to be spoiled. You know, like I, I could tell you hundreds of stories about those kind of things where you're like, oh, that's more than just a piece of, you know, that's more than something that fits in a spreadsheet. I, I really love these examples and it speaks to my curiosity to understand the origin story of a relationship with money. As you're talking about stories and these decisions that you've made, two things come to my mind is is one would be, I don't think you have an answer for this, but what do you think your kids would put on that line item of your wife staying home with, with the kids? Yeah, such a, that's a fantastic question. I know that it certainly would vary by kid, but I think at least three of my kids would be like, I mean, I don't know that they know how valuable that is, but I think at least two of them are understanding now because they're older. Like, oh my gosh, that was so amazing to have mom around. Because I, I, I mean, I know for sure, because I watched this happen multiple times. They wouldn't know that I was home. They'd come home from school. They would open the door. They would drop their backpacks. They would yell, mom. My wife would say, yeah. They'd say, oh, nothing. <laughs> like they just wanted to know. And in this case, that could be dad, right? Like it mm-hmm. could be, in, in our case, it was mom. They just wanted to know she was there. And so... If they don't recognize it now, it's just purely because they they don't have that perspective quite yet. But all of them, I think, would put a huge value. I mean, it's massive value. Yeah, it's a number that who knows what it is, but the bonds and the relationships. Yeah. My sister is a senior marketing executive at a company and her husband stays home and those, their boys, they have all boys, their boys walk in and say, dad, you know, and, and they get the same value. It's not about 
that. I mean, I know traditionally we may have this setting of mom being at home. And for us, that's how it worked out. But I don't mean it that way. I just mean, Mm -hmm. and I don't even mean that that's a, I'm not even making that suggestion. I'm saying for our family, A, we were able to do that, which is a gigantic blessing. And B, it was valuable to us. Mm -hmm. And I think you bring up a good point is like, there's no universal recipe where we come from an industry that sometimes has these universal rule of thumbs that need to be applied, which, I mean, our stories, to your point, are so uniquely our own, where we can't just put these universal rules of thumb. Well, we got to be careful that we don't. And I think that's when we can get in trouble and we aren't detaching from desired outcomes. But just hearing you talk about this, I just hear the sentiment of even your wife. She was relaxed. She felt like it's okay to make that, you know, stay at home. She didn't feel bad because sometimes the world, the social narrative out there might be like, what, you're not working? What, you're moving to New Zealand? I heard you on another podcast talk about there was like a finance or maybe a business opportunity that you decided to leave, let go, again, that permission to let go in order to do these things. And I think... That's the beauty of it is when we can detach from the intoxication effect that money can have on us. With that New Zealand trip, I'm curious, I really like your, from what I read and hear you talk about your firm belief in your values of spending time with your family outside. With your New Zealand trip, how did that influence, impact, or reaffirm, change alter or anything your your core values of family time outside if anything at all so new zealand is the best in the world at what new zealand does and one of the things that new zealand is the best in the world at is is outside right like doesn't get any better and so all it did was cement that we spent more time outside in new zealand than we had anywhere else Partially because life was less busy there. It's just less busy. They got a bunch of things right when it comes to that. So it just reaffirmed it. And we, we spent a lot of time outside. It was, it, was, it was amazing. So yeah, that's one thing we miss a lot about it. What we miss, I mean, one of the reasons that was possible, like I said, is because it's in the air there. And I don't think we realize in North America, certainly in the States at least, that air we breathe and the water we swim in there's a static around money that it's hard to recognize when you're in it it's like that zen the old zen story of the old wise fish that swims up to the two young fish and says boys how's the water and the two young fish say what water you could feel it you can feel it in other countries but in new zealand at least we could feel it everything slowed down which allowed us time to spend as a family. And now when we're back here, we're, we're very aware of fighting against that current to get swept away again and lose track of how important that is. As you're answering that question, I just, I have to speak, and I'm not just saying this because you're on my podcast and I want you to like this episode. I, I genuinely mean this is that in an industry where I observe, and it's not all the case, there's many people touting how to run your practice as a financial planner, how to get a big ROI, how to grow your practice with minimal effort, all very valuable things, to, but it can be. I appreciate your consistency, and I'm sure you don't always get it right, but your consistency on your values, or you speak them all the time, but your actions are showing like this time outside with your family. 
anyone who really follows you online knows that you're even clients working with, like you've talked about physicians in Utah who are at the hospital who like to go trail running outside, helping them to get outside if it's outside, whatever their value is. But I really see that you have some congruency between what you say and what you do. And taking off to New Zealand is an example of that. Your wife staying at home is another example of that. So I guess I think this is an important observation for planners and just regular people. And maybe we'll take it from the planner's perspective. How do you think a planner can help our clients become more congruent with the said goals, which are usually very loose? Like I agree with your thought of goals. Like what's your goal? And let's force and put them down. But how can planners, and maybe I'm going to back up because it's a loaded question. Let's start with what you believe with goal and purpose. And then how can we utilize those two things to help clients become more congruent with their said goals and purpose? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, that's really nice of you to say. And it feels, I have to just accept it and say, thank you. And I have tons of work to do on it. And I think it's important to acknowledge that just because then we can use that maybe as an example. Like if you think visually about this, so if, if I were drawing this, I've done a lot of art on the radio. So if I were drawing this, just pretend like you drew two circles on a page. Almost pretend like you're drawing a Venn diagram, but a gap. So really all that would be is two circles. And in one circle, if you label your use use of capital, you just put that in that circle, use of capital. And by capital, put an asterisk. And with that asterisk, just put time, money, energy, and attention. So that circle just represents like, how do I use my time, money, energy, and attention, which we're going to shortcut to capital. And on the right-hand side of the piece of paper, that circle says, what's important to me? And there's a gap. I mean, I, I can remember where I was when I first drew that that way with no overlap. And I, I, it's been, you know, seven or eight years. I can remember where I was. I could go back and look where, what time frame that was, but it's probably been seven or eight years that I've been thinking about that gap because this is just sort of what I do. Like these ideas get in my head and I have to think about them for a very long time. And I was trying to figure out what, what would you label that gap? Like, what would you label it? And one day I was like, I think you just label it being human, right? And, and so then I was thinking about, well, how do you close it? And the only word that I have is through practice. And so the problem is most of us see that gap and we run from it. And that gap may, like, I'll give you an example. I one time did an experiment where I, there's a company called Rescue Time. They create a service which monitors, you put on your computer and it tells you how you spend your time. And I wrote one of the columns about how you use the use of time and they reached out to me. So I had them install Rescue Time on my computer and then I made a bunch of claims about how I spent my time. Like I never look at email after five. I would never check Twitter on the weekends. I don't care about politics. and I certainly would never read the other news site. I love, I love sports, but I don't spend much time reading sports. Like I made all these claims and I said, okay, now measure how I use my time for 30 days, but don't tell me anything about it until the end of the 30 days. So I tried to forget that it was on my computer and they came back at the end of 30 days. And what they showed me was horrific, close to one of the most painful things I've ever really gone through because it just didn't match at all. Like what I said. And so, you know, if my daughter would say, Hey, you know, could we go on a hike and I time with my family being outside? And I would say no. And then I would look at that report and realize I spent three hours on ESPN that week. So 
it's really tempting at that point to just run away from that information. And very few people have permission to enter that gap because there's a strong disincentive, like try, try entering that gap with a friend of yours. Like there's a strong disincentive to not bring up inauthentic behavior. So instead I've been trying to train myself that that gap is just an opportunity to practice and go, gosh, yeah, that's right. I, I kind of missed that one again. How could I tweak my behavior a little bit to be a little more aware? And so I think that's the same thing we do with clients. Like we just unknowingly given us permission to enter that, that space. And they can say, like we can say, I mean, like an easy example would be investment returns, scary markets. I can remember this exactly with the client named Jerry. Jerry told me the only thing that mattered to him about money was to not be a burden to the kids. That was his most important thing. Not be a burden to the kids. So we invested the money. They, they had very conservative needs. You know, you invest the money and then the market goes down. Actually, the market went up. That's right. Really up, 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 up. And Jerry came and said, gosh, do we be more aggressive? And I remember saying like, hey, let's just circle back to what you put in this circle over here. Never be a burden to the kids. Is that still the most important thing? Yeah. Ah, well what you're asking in terms of being more aggressive is in conflict with keeping you from never being a burden to the kids. Like if things go sideways, you know, that could change. Is that, Oh yeah. Thanks for the reminder. Right. I had another client who said the most important thing was spending time with his daughter. And the one way he really wanted to do it was coach his daughter's soccer team, but he didn't have time. And he was, I can't remember what business, but it was like, private equity or venture capital or something like he just had to work all these hours to get his, you know, annual bonus. And he had a paid off car and it was a boring car, whatever it was, just a, you know, a normal car. And he, he, great, fine, normal car. He came in one day and wanted to lease a Tesla. He wanted to get a Tesla and it would require a lease even after he traded in his car. And so I was like, Oh, this is interesting. Like, do I have permission to go into that space and say, Hey, if you didn't lease the Tesla, could you buy yourself a little bit of time to coach your daughter's soccer team, right? And so the way we enter that, sometimes that's a punch in the face. Sometimes it's an empathetic hug. Sometimes it's checkers. Sometimes it's chess. And sometimes we have to lose an individual battle to win a larger war. That's the art of financial planning, and my favorite thing to say to somebody, just because I think this will be useful for any planners out there, like my favorite thing to say, which I said to that guy about the car, was I said, hey, you may fire me for what I'm about to say, but you should definitely fire me if I don't. And I found that to be really useful in those conversations. So that, that's how I think you do it. Like we remind everybody it's human. It's normal that this gap exists. In fact, just about the time you get some overlap, it's going to go apart again. I remember like one time, Christmas Eve, the circles were perfectly overlapped. How I was spending my time, money, energy, and attention was perfectly overlapped with what was important. We're sitting around the fire, the dogs on the couch, everybody's like watching a movie, whatever, just had a great meal. Ah, perfect overlap. And the next morning, I remember being like, what all these presents? What? Like, and boom, gap again. So I think if we understand that, it's a process. It's a never-ending process. So we do it ourselves, and then we help clients do it by just carefully deciding what's the right way to enter that space. That visual, uh, I drew it as you were talking, really, really makes it, again, this idea of complex concept, simple. 
When you said that line, I'd fire me if I didn't say this. Like you might fire me for saying this, but you definitely should fire me if I didn't. It's going back to this idea of you said earlier, if I'm relaxed, I'm feeling safe. Is like if I'm an advisor, if I know I'm believing in the work I'm doing, I can take the risk and say things like this instead of just like jumping towards the rate of return that are some of the, the more traditional things we might jump to. And taking that risk, I'll say, to enter that space, I think is, is one of the most rewarding things that we can have if we go into our own space. And, and what are your thoughts on advisors trying to work in this space, but not having gone to their own gap? Ooh, yeah, I don't know. that's hard. It feels like I've heard this from somebody at one of the research, financial planning research universities like Kansas State or Texas Tech or UVU. But I don't know if it's, I, I don't know, I can't, I wouldn't be able to sign it. But my sense is that there's a lot of us in this industry that are here because we're trying to work out our own demons. Mm-hmm. You know, like we were drawn to it. We may not know that, but we were drawn to it by trying to make sense of money for ourselves and maybe even get some certainty, some ground underneath our feet, like mm-hmm. all of those sorts of things. And so there's a lot of work to be done. And I, I, I think one way to do that is to work with a financial planner, you know, and I think most planners should, I don't know if should's the right word. Most planners would benefit from mm-hmm. working with a, a financial planner. And I'm shocked at how much of like, yeah, and I was thinking earlier about, when you mentioned Plato, I was thinking earlier about there are just as many, if not more, I think, pointers in the wisdom traditions around the idea that there's always enough. Like Jesus is the classic example of just continually like, what, what, what? Why, who, what person would build a barn, fill it up, and then build another? <laughs> you know, and then the, with like dripping sarcasm, and then the lilies of the field, of course, like, like they never... They never worry about tomorrow. I would imagine that almost any therapist would tell you that, yeah, that money, money's at the center. Mm-hmm. So yeah, how do you do it? How, you know, should we do it? I don't know if financial planners should. I just know that it's a lot easier for me to empathize today with a 40-year-old thinking that they need to hustle and crush it. And, and I can see it. I can see the like oh, you're just trying to get some ground underneath your feet, mm-hmm. right? You're just trying to get a little validation. You're just trying to be enough. You're just trying to get your dad to say, good job, son. You know, like like that kind, that level of work really needs to be done. That, I mean, that was a great answer. And yeah, there's, I'm sure, research out there, but I appreciate your like hands-on, on-the-ground perspective of what you just said there. And that question made me think, I thought of that question because when you said an empathetic hug, it's like when I've gone towards that gap, then I can give that empathetic hug. I feel, and it, you know, I just think doing some of that work ourselves allows us to recognize and see that person like, yeah, that's it. And then everything changes and perhaps it goes towards with this idea that you're saying, which I appreciate you're always, I don't know, I don't want to say disturbing it, but you're you're looking at things differently. And this idea of calling this what is a real financial planner, you know, you talked about the behavior gap. You, you people were talking about investment returns at there. You're like, no, 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 no. Look at look at this gap. And now you're saying, hey, hey, we need to become real financial planners. So what is this 
value that a real financial planner provides to our clients? I think the dilemma is there's a mismatch between what humans desperately want and what money can provide. And that mismatch is around certainty, returns, future projections, all of that stuff. So not only is that what humans want, it's what humans have been trained that we do, that financial planners will provide this. I've never had a person walk into the office and say, hey, I'd like to cry on your couch. Or, hey, can you help me deal with the uncertainty? Now, more, normally it's around an acute problem, typically around investments or insurance. And, and so what a real financial planner understands, I believe, is that we need to engage on that level with, I, I call it sort of like greet, greet with empathy at that level. Hey, investment performance is important to me too. It's a huge driver of it. And we take it really seriously here. And then help me understand that it actually doesn't matter at all if I don't get the why right. And so real financial planning is actually just about that redirection of taking people out of the branches of the tree, which really matter a lot. They're important. And I, maybe a better analogy is, you know, debating endless debates around whether to take a plane, a train, or an automobile on a trip. Those debates are important. That's an important decision. Should I take a plane or a train? That's an important decision. It's a totally meaningless decision if I haven't decided where I'm going first. And so everybody thinks all the work we do is up here. And the, like, just to be analogy heavy, it's a, it's a bit like endless debates around the right prescription for something without any diagnosis. So that's where real planning starts is like, hey, no diagnosis, no prescription, right? Like I'm, I'm not going to just, I'm going to stop just chucking prescriptions at people. I mean, we've gotten so good at that. We'd be like blue. Oh, you don't like blue. That's okay. I've got green. You're like, but without ever saying like, hey, what's the color for? Like, what, what are you, you going to do? Then once we've sort of tried to work with people and that's where all this like a sense of purpose and goals discovery starts happening. Then, then it's really just a function of real financial planners or ones that understand they can't deliver certainty. They understand that that's actually not even the, that's not even the goal. What does it feel like when you accept that your job is to help people make really important decisions in the face of irreducible uncertainty? So I've got to help you make a really important decision with incomplete information. I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know. That's a different job. It's much more like being a guide in a changing landscape than it is being a defender of an outdated map. So that means like when things blow up, I, I like to talk a lot about like, well, what do you do when the plan blows up? Well, the plan's always blowing up. That means I have to look people in the eyes and go, look, my, my value wasn't in drawing a correct map. The fact that the map, the landscape doesn't match the map does not mean I was wrong. I knew this would happen. I just didn't know when or where. My value is in the fact that when this happens, I know what to do. I'm good at navigating uncertainty. And I've done it a bunch. I got a whole bunch of tools in my backpack. And then if things get really scary, you know, you get to reach across the table and grab somebody by the collar and say, hey, we're going to go this way. I've got you. Like, I've got you. Right? That's a totally different job than saying, well, Sorry, the economic forecast was wrong. Hmm. You know, and I think that's the difference between real and the real is a nod to reality, like reality-based financial planning. 
your your analogy with the guide and defender, I think, is sums up a lot of this conversation. Is the the guide to use your words is that the changing landscape, and in order to adapt to that, we have to let go of our outcomes and not hold them tight fisted like a defender may. And I think when you do that, it's just you create this beautiful dance where people are not leasing Teslas so they can actually do what their value is coaching soccer. And to me, the opportunity of cost of that is again, can't put it down on the balance sheet. What is the cost of not teaching or coaching your daughter soccer? I have a one last question and then I want to point people in the direction of where we can find more about you. I want to get into your society and everything, but Hey, that's a secret. So people have to find it a unique way. But my last question here, and, uh, Let's imagine you're somewhere that brings you peace. You're at the end of life. Could be in New Zealand, Park City, wherever you feel content, peace. You're at the end of life. You're on a porch looking out at mountains, ocean, whatever brings you this sense of peace. And you decide to write your children's children a letter on what you learned about having a healthy and happy relationship with money. What would a theme to that letter be? That there is always enough. It would just be like, I think that's the... To me, the central, and I actually believe it could be the central, the crux of the experience as humans. And this is unfortunate. I wish it wasn't true. Because money's become the organizing, the central organizing force in the world, and we all know love should be, right? But it, it's money, and that's a bummer. Because of that, I think the central, one of the central tests that we face is how we would answer the question have you any money? And I think the right way to answer that is I have sufficient for my needs. And if we all lived with sufficient for our needs, and there's there's all sorts of wiggle room in there, like somebody might define a boat as a need. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, right? Like I wouldn't pretend. I know, okay, that's exactly what I feel like. Okay, great, give me a checklist of what it means to have a need and what's sufficient. No, just you to work out with the universe, right? But if we were all to do that, there's room for everybody. There's enough for everybody. And so I think that would be the message would be like, look, just meditate and ponder and work on what it means to have sufficient for your needs. And there will be enough. Enough already exists. You can't get there. You can just be there. Wow. You can't get there. You can just be there. Yeah. Thank you for that. Carl, it has been a pleasure. I have heard your voice in my earbuds for many years listening to your audiobook and it was neat to have it live. So thank you for today. Where can people find more about Carl Richards, the work you're doing, upcoming things, anything you'd like to share? Yeah. So like the work I do for humans is at thebehaviorgap.com and that's spelled the American way with no U. So behaviorgap.com. And then the work, if you're a financial advisor, financial planner, just go to thesocietyofadvice.com and follow the cues. See what happens. I like that. Yeah. Well, Carl, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Cheers. It was super fun, Sean. Thank you. Without a top, my wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I write a freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life, it's just the wind in the sea.